The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. We, we continue our series in Luke chapter 4, looking at verses 31 to the end of the chapter. We, we covered the first part of this last week, and we're going to jump back in and finish it out this morning. Uh, but just by way of, uh, of help to our memory, we'll read the whole text, beginning uh, in verse 31. Luke records for us this. He says, And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Reports of him went into every place in the surrounding region, and he arose, and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him to, uh, on her behalf. He stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, he laid hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. They rebuked them. They would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, <clears throat> he departed, and he went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. God, this is your word. We stand before it with humility and with the realization that when we read these words, we're not just reading words on a page, but we're literally hearing your voice speak to us. The king of the universe, you have something to say to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear it, that we'd be open to what it is that you'd like to communicate to us this morning, that we'd be open to ways that you might want to change us, that we would hear your word loud and clear, and that we would be willing, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit to apply it to our own lives. May your word go out in power and with authority and accomplish exactly what you've caused it and set it out to accomplish this morning. For we pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, there are some things that happen in, in church life uh, that you never forget. If you've been around church very long, I'm sure you've seen some, some pretty uh, unforgettable things. Uh, there is one event that, that happened in my, my college years that uh, I'll go to my grave never forgetting. I was in a church. There I was in Easley, South Carolina. I don't know if you've been to Easley. Maybe you have. There's a great little hot dog and ice cream place called Joe's. If you ever go there, go see Joe's. But that's a total aside. I was in church on a Sunday morning. 
I was a college student, and uh, there was, I was attending a church in Easley, and there was an associate pastor for the church. His name was Howard, and everybody called him Preacher Fuller, and, uh, and Howard was just a phenomenal man. He was an, he was an older man. He was in his late 60s, and uh, he had been preaching for a long time, and he was just one of the godliest men that I've ever been around, really, in my life. He was, he was meek, and he was humble, and he was kind, and he was always interested to talk to you, and just a very fascinating and, and uh, interesting pastor. One of the things that was most memorable to me about Preacher uh, Fuller was that when you talked to him just at any given time, he just seemed like a normal guy, but something happened <clears throat> whenever he would walk up the steps into the pulpit and he would start to preach. It was like someone lit his hair on fire. And I would find myself going, what happened to him from there to here? Because he was just fire and brimstone. I mean, he was all over the stage. He was sweating. He was spitting. He was just going at it with, with all that he had. Maybe you've seen that kind of preaching before. And uh, <clears throat> I remember one particular Sunday morning. It just burned vividly into my memory banks. Uh, Preacher Fuller was preaching there. The, the main pastor was away, and he was preaching, and he was doing his normal, just going after it with all that he had, the message that he prepared that morning. And right in the middle of, of one of his moments, when his voice was high and his antics were big, he made a big, loud statement, and he pointed with his right hand. And just as he did that, his dentures flew out of his mouth. Now, if that wasn't, the, that wasn't the most memorable part of it. The most memorable part of it was he was pointing, and he literally caught them with his right hand, threw them back in, and he kept going. In my mind, Preacher Fuller is a rock star, and he always will be. <clears throat> that event would have shut many a pastor down, including the one standing on the stage right now, but not Preacher Fuller. I'll never forget that. Uh, if you've been in church very long, you know that there are some pretty incredible things that happen occasionally in church life that you don't just easily forget. But if you had been in the Sabbath worship at Capernaum on the day that Luke records for us, you would have been in a worship service that you would have certainly never forgotten. In the middle of the worship service, a demon screams out at the preacher, in this case, Jesus, who subsequently tells it to shut its mouth and to come out of the man. He then throws the man on the ground in the middle of the place and comes out and instantly obeys Christ. What a remarkable Sabbath service that must have been. And I'm sure that everybody in attendance would have remembered that for many, many years. But as if that wasn't enough, the Sabbath on this particular day is really just getting started. The events that take place after that are every bit as remarkable, perhaps even more remarkable than the events that took place during the, the worship service. And, and Luke records those for us, and we look at them this morning. And just by way of sort of uh, taking us back into the, the thought pattern from last week, we're looking at this text, and we're, we're noticing that there are two real sort of markers or characteristics that I see in the text here that mark the ministry of Jesus. Very important characteristics of his ministry that are noteworthy for us to pay attention to because I think they are two characteristics that need to mark the ministry of all who call the name of Jesus and who identify with him. There are two things, simply authority and compassion. His authority was connected to his words, and we saw that last week as we explored this event with the, the exorcism during the service. 
But he wasn't just a man who walked and carried himself with authority. He was a man who also carried himself with tremendous compassion for human suffering. And we see that in the part of the text that we look at this morning as as he engages people who are sick, as he engages people who are suffering, as he engages people who are hurting. And, And as I mentioned last week, there are many today who try to set these two characteristics at odds with one another as though they're somehow mutually exclusive. And then some set up ministries that are exclusively focused on preaching and teaching and doctrine, but have no concern for people's physical condition and no concern for caring for human suffering and physical needs. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the social gospel, which ends up largely becoming all social and no gospel, where we're caring exclusively for people's human needs and we're neglecting serious consideration of doctrine and truth and scripture. I want to suggest to you that polarizing in either of those directions is a, is a fool's errand, and it is at, at, at crossroads with the ministry of Jesus. Because in his ministry, we see it here in this text and all throughout the New Testament, these two characteristics work in perfect harmony. They're not in some sort of a, a false competition with each other in such a way that we have to choose one or the other and polarize ourselves in that way. His ministry, his word... It carried with it authority and power to change people, to change their circumstances, to change their hearts. And yet, at the same time, he spends endless, endless hours caring for people who are suffering and addressing their human needs. Luke shows us this by way of of revealing to us some miracles that take place. Certainly the exorcism in the, in, the, in the Sabbath service was a miracle. Not just anybody could go around doing this, such things, and Jesus does it in an instant. But what takes place next is a series of miracles that happen late into the night, one after the other after the other. And it leads us down a road that we're going to explore further as we make our way through Luke's gospel, as we start looking at and thinking through this whole issue of miracles. I mean, when you think of a miracle, what do you think of? A miracle really, at essence, is, is, is God's supernatural sort of intrusion into the normal, natural way things happen on, on earth and doing things that, that don't accord with what's normal and what's, what's natural. He intervenes in ways that are unexplainable. And he does things that can't be described apart from just saying it's a miracle. It isn't the normal thing. And that leads us to a bunch of questions. How are we to deal with miracles when they come up in the Bible? And furthermore, how are we to to think of miracles today in practical sense in in life and ministry? Are are miracles sort of rare and random things that we shouldn't expect that may pop up from time to time? Or are they things that, that really should be expected and pursued all the time? This is a debate going on in the Christian world for generations now. We'll have to think through that a little further down the road. But for, 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 for modern folks in our culture, miracles really seem far-fetched, don't they? I mean, you start talking about miracles, and, 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 and to, mo- to many people, maybe even most people, miracles sort of seem like fantasy. They seem like, they seem like make-believe. They, they, they seem like the kinds of things that, that, that children believe, but not educated adults. If you were to go to the Smithsonian Museum this, sometime in the near future, you could see on display there the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And there's a picture of it on the screen for you there, but Thomas Jefferson was one who, who wanted to hold on to some sort of remnant of Christian faith, 
but he just could not come to terms with miracles. And so his solution to that was to take his Bible and to cut out all of the supernatural occurrences in the Bible and to cut out all of the miracles and repaste it together as a Bible absent the supernatural. And that's what he read in the evenings before he went to bed. A Bible minus the miracles. A Bible minus the supernatural. For some people, miracles are just hard to believe. For others, miracles raise a a different sort of a question. I reread a book recently that I had read some years ago. It's a book called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. And in one of the chapters in this book, he he writes on the issue of miracles. And and I, I just want to read a little segment of this because I think what he reflects in his thought is very similar to what many think about today. Listen to what, what he writes. He says, the atmosphere that I grew up with, and, and he grew up in, in a church context. The atmosphere I grew up with, grew up in was, was humid with miracles. Most Sundays, people in our church would testify about marvelous answers to prayer that they had received the preceding week. God found parking places for mothers who drove their children to the doctor. Lost fountain pens mysteriously reappeared. Tumors shrank away the day before a scheduled surgery. In those days, I envisioned Jesus as a great magician. And fittingly, the story of his walking on water especially impressed me. If only I could pull off such a stunt in my school just once. How I'd love to fly through the room like an angel, silencing with levitation all those who scoffed at me and the other religious types. How I would love to walk unscathed through the bullies at the bus stop as Jesus had walked through an angry crowd in his hometown. But I never, I never managed to fly through the classroom, though, and bullies continued to torment me no matter how hard I prayed. Even the answers to prayer, in quotes, he says, confused me. Sometimes, after all, parking places did not open up, and fountain pens stayed lost. Sometimes church people lost their jobs, and sometimes they died. A great shadow darkened my own life, he says. My father had died of polio just after my first birthday, despite a round-the-clock prayer vigil involving hundreds of dedicated Christians. Where was God then? He says, I spent much of my adult life coming to terms with with questions that first stirred up during my youth. Prayer, I found, doesn't work like a vending machine. Insert request, receive answer. Miracles are just like that. They're miracles. They're not ordinaries, common to daily experience. As I now reflect on my life, miracles play a a less prominent role than what I had imagined as a child. As far as Jesus goes, Superman he was not. I don't know if you've thought it through the way Philip Yancey's thought it through, but I imagine some hint of that resonated with you. When we think about miracles and we read them in the Bible, it raises a a host of questions. Why those miracles? Why those people? Why then? Why not now? Why not in this case? What is the relationship to these things to prayer, and how should we address them? Well, we'll talk about these things over time as we work through Luke and see the miracles over and over and over again. But some of these things come to bear even this morning in our text as we look at Jesus and his ministry at Capernaum. And, and, and just the whole day begins with this Sabbath event, this miracle of exercising a demon. And Jesus shows very clearly 
his authority over demons. He does it by simply speaking to a demon who shouts out in the church service, and, and with a simple command, <clears throat> the demon shuts its mouth, or shuts the mouth of the man it's inhabiting, and he leaves. Even the supernatural beings like demons have to obey Christ. He has authority over the demons. And we saw in this really a connection to an earlier passage where right after Jesus' baptism, he's he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he confronts Satan directly. And we saw at the end of that that confrontation, Luke simply told us that Satan had left until another opportune time. And we'll see this spiritual war continuing throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. And this day in Capernaum is just another skirmish, if you will, in that war that's playing out behind the scenes. But Luke wants us to understand that Jesus has authority, that he has complete authority over Satan, and he has complete authority over demons. But that's not the only kind of authority that he has. We pick up the story in Luke, uh, verse verse 38 and 39, right after the service ends. And I'm glad to see in the first century that after worship, people did the same things they do now. They go eat. This is what Luke says. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. The The synagogue in Capernaum was very close to Peter's house. I showed you an excavation picture last, last week, and if you recall that, which you probably don't, but believe me when I tell you it's true. They were pretty close to Peter's house. You could walk out of the synagogue and you could head over to Peter's house uh, in, in pretty short order. And so immediately after worship, they gather up and they head over to Peter's home. And the tradition was that you shared a meal after the synagogue service, much like what you'll do probably with your family when you leave Christian worship this morning. But on this particular day, the meal doesn't go as planned because there's a a hitch in the plan. Peter's mother-in-law, Luke tells us, is ill with a high fever. Now, quick note, Peter had a mother-in-law. Now, I don't know about you, but there's, in, in my world, there's only one way to acquire one of those, and that's to get married. I don't know another way to do that, unless you know another way to get a mother-in-law without getting married. But uh, the the clear assumption here is that Peter was married and that he had a living mother-in-law who lived in the home with them. It's an inconvenient truth for our Roman Catholic friends who call Peter the first pope and insist on papal celibacy. I'm not sure how Peter could be the first pope. And yeah, you you got the rest. And get a mother-in-law, you understand? Um, So... They have to figure that out on their own. I'm not going to solve that for them. But in either case, what do we know is that he had a mother-in-law that was living in the house. And on this particular day, we're told that she was ill with a high fever. If you recall, Luke is, is a, a doctor. That, that's his practice or his skill set in his day. Uh, he's a doctor, a first century doctor. And so he is acquainted with illness and sickness and disease. And so it's not going to surprise us that he gives us a little more detail than other gospel writers do when it comes to this issue. He says to us in very clear language that the mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. It seems a little redundant. He includes the word high in there just so that we'll know that this was a serious situation. She didn't just have the sniffles. She didn't just have a runny nose. This dear woman was sick and she was on the verge of death. Her life was hanging in the balance. If you think of of our day, a high fever really isn't that big of a deal for the most part. I mean, you get a fever, you take a couple of Advil, 
you pick up some Tylenol and you bring the fever down and eventually it breaks and you sweat and it goes away and you get better. But in the first century, a fever was a very, very serious thing, particularly a high fever when you didn't have the medical means to be able to artificially reduce that until your body can catch up and, and heal. It was a desperate situation. A person with a high fever could either recover relatively quickly or they could die suddenly. Chuck Swindoll says that, that a high fever in the first century represented the same kind of uncertainty as a coma does today. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So what we've got here is a desperate situation. This woman is gravely ill, and in a very real sense, her life is sort of hanging in the balance. And so it's natural for Peter and the family to appeal to Jesus. They've just watched him cast a demon out of a, a demon-possessed man, and they've seen him do other things. And so they appeal to him to help. She's so ill, she can't get up for Jesus' visit, so he goes to her. And Luke tells us in very succinct language, very simply, that he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. Luke's language is very precise. He uses the exact same language that he uses when it comes to the demon. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out. Here Jesus rebukes the fever and it leaves. And in doing so, Luke shows us that Jesus not only has power and authority over demons and over Satan, but he has power and authority just the same over sickness and disease. Surprisingly, we're told, immediately she rose and began to serve them. Does that not strike you as odd? Like immediately she gets up, starts serving, preparing the meal, doing the things she would normally do. I mean, the, the, the healing is immediate and it's complete. She doesn't need a nap. She doesn't need recovery time. She doesn't need further medication. She gets up, and she's like, hey, I'm feeling much better now. I think I'll go make dinner. I mean, it's remarkable. It's remarkable what happens. She gets about serving. An appropriate thing to do when we've been the recipient of a miracle from the hand of Christ. Luke records this, this personal, intimate scene in Peter's house because he wants us to understand that Jesus has full authority over the physical realm, just like he has full authority over the spiritual realm. There is no realm in existence over which Christ does not have full authority. And that's what he wants us to see. And so that's why he gives us a peek into Peter's home on this Sabbath day. We'll come back to this. But this issue of authority is all over Jesus' life. His authority shows in his teaching. His authority shows over demons. His authority shows up over sickness and disease. But authority is not all there was to his ministry. Christ had tremendous compassion for human suffering. We've already seen hints of it. This dear man in the church was absolutely possessed by this demon. He had no control, no ability to resist whatsoever. Can you imagine the kind of suffering a man would go through having no control over your own voice and your own body at any point if you're taken over by a demon? It's a pitiful situation. And Jesus relieves that man. This dear woman in Peter's home on the verge of death with a high fever and he relieves her suffering. But that isn't even the end of it. Look at verse 40 and following. When the sun was setting, 
All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. And he rebukes them just like he rebuked the other. It's been a long day. Already dealt with a demon at church service. Healed a lady at lunchtime. And now we're told the sun's setting and it's the evening time. And that's an important statement that the sun was setting. Because that's the signifying note that the Sabbath was ending. The Sabbath was ending, and so now people could come out and be active. It was no longer unlawful to bring sick people out and bring them to Jesus. Just a quick note, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law when? On the Sabbath. He healed her on the Sabbath. He doesn't wait till it's over. He also healed the demon-possessed man on the Sabbath. This was not unintentional. In the first century, Sabbath was and still remains to some degree for Jews, 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday. That was the Sabbath. It was the last day of the week, and it was built off of Genesis chapter 2, the creation story, where we're told that God worked for six days in creation, and then he rested on the seventh. And in honor of that, so to speak, the Lord declared for people a special day of rest and remembrance. It was to be a day where people paused from their work and paused from their labor and took time to rest and took time to reflect and remember the goodness of the Lord. He knew that people like you and people like me need to rest. He knew that life can get busy and life can get stressful and cares and concerns can rise up in our life and and captivate our thoughts and our attention. And we need a moment every week to stop and pause and reset and rest and refocus on him so that we don't forget him. And so he called his people to observe a Sabbath every week. By the time we get to the first century, though, it's now become uh, a ceremonial obligation that's enshrined in law. And what was a very simple principle to be obeyed has now been layered upon layer, a layer upon layer of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of laws that relate to how people have to observe the Sabbath, to what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. It was such an oppressive sort of a, a layering of laws that no one could possibly Uh, keep up with it. So instead of a day of rest, what it became for people was an incredible day of burden, making sure you didn't do anything to violate the Sabbath and get in trouble with the religious leaders. Just a a few things, just to give you a taste of of what one could or could not do on the Sabbath. You you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your house. It was as far as you could go on the Sabbath. There were only certain objects that could be picked up and put down on the Sabbath because too much weight and it constitutes work. You couldn't carry a load any heavier than a dried fig. That was sort of the weight there if you wanted to. Uh, You couldn't eat anything larger than an olive. Even if you ate half of the olive and you found it to be rotten and you spit it out, uh, you still ate it. You couldn't get another half of an olive. If the Sabbath overtook you, like it hit 6 p.m. and you were reaching for food, you were required to immediately release it and drop it and not put it to your mouth. Tailors couldn't carry a needle because they might be tempted to mend something in their work on the Sabbath. You couldn't buy or sell anything. Laundry couldn't be washed. Letters couldn't be sent. Fires couldn't be lit or extinguished. You could use a fire if it was lit before the Sabbath, 
couldn't take a bath. Do you know why? It's not because being smelly is somehow holy. You couldn't take a bath because if you took a bath, water might spill out on the floor and wash it. That's work. Ladies, you'll appreciate this. Women couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Think about that for a while. Why would a lady not be allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath? Well, the explanation by the rabbis is because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which would be work on the Sabbath. False teeth couldn't be worn. I don't know how Preacher Howard would have preached. He just still tried, and it sounded funny. But when it comes to illness, this is the important thing. You could not help someone get better on the Sabbath. That was a violation of the law. You could not help someone get better. You could, the only thing you could do is make sure they don't die. You couldn't improve their situation because that would constitute work. And so here we have Jesus intentionally on the Sabbath healing Peter's mother-in-law and exercising a demon. It's not going to be the last time he does this, and it's going to become an issue the further along we go. But after the Sabbath ended, the sun was setting, the people who were trying to keep the law could now legally come out, and they did come out. Apparently, word had traveled pretty wide and pretty far about what happened in the synagogue and what happened in Peter's home. And so people are literally flooding to Jesus, we're told, with all of the sick and disabled and hurting and suffering people in the town. They're all coming to Jesus. The whole city is bringing all of the sick to him. And Luke simply tells us he laid his hands on every one of them. And he healed them. This had to have lasted late into the night. It must have been absolutely exhausting and draining. And I ask the question, why does he do that? Why does Jesus work late into the night after a long day healing every sick person in the town that's brought to him? Why does he do that? I mean, everybody that he heals is eventually going to do what? They're going to die of something else, right? They're going to die of something else. So why bother healing their current disease when they're only going to get something else and die? Why stay up all into the evening and do this? At best, it just provides a temporary relief for a season, right? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he heal? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons for this that are important. First and foremost, as with all of his miracles, the healing that he does here validates his message. It showed that he is who he claimed to be, God in human flesh. Every time Jesus heals someone who's sick, miraculously, every time he throws a demon out of someone who's demon-possessed, every time he does something miraculous, these are actions that act as huge arrows that point to the message that he's been preaching, that he is the Son of God come in human flesh, the only hope for salvation. He says things like, I am the light of the world. And then he opens the eyes of a blind man so that he can, for the first time, see light. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he walks over to a tomb where Lazarus is buried, and he says, Lazarus, come on out. And he brings a dead man back to life. Those are examples, and there are many more where the miracles of Jesus serve in part to validate his message, 
to prove that he is who he says that he is, to prove that the message that he is declaring, the gospel that he is teaching, is the truth in a world full of lies. But that's not the only reason Jesus healed the sick. It might be the primary reason, but it's not the only reason. The other reason that Jesus does this, I'm convinced, is because he was moved by human suffering. He was moved with compassion for human suffering. He cared, he cared for people. He looked out at people and he saw them as suffering and sick and dying and hurt and grieving. And something inside of him had to act. We see this all over the Gospels. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew says this. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And note here, he had just gone across the Sea of Galilee to get away from a crowd, and he gets to the other side, and the crowd of sick people has followed all the way around and beat him to the other side. When he gets there, is he annoyed? No. Matthew says he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. In Mark chapter 1, verse 41, Mark tells us, A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And then he says, moved with pity. It's the same word for compassion. He stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and he said, I will be clean. In Luke chapter 7, we'll get to that in a couple of months probably, Luke records for us, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, literally a dead man being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Poor, pitiful woman. Her only son, her husband dead, and now her son is dead, and she's all alone. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he was too busy to do anything about it, right? No. He had compassion on her. And he says to her, don't weep. And he tells the dead son to get up and get back to life. This word translated compassion or pity in these texts is not a mild word. It's, the, the English word pity doesn't cover it. It's not a simple pity. It's not just sympathy. It's not even really just empathy. It's a word that its origins literally meant, it referred to the organs in the lower part of the abdomen, what we in the South call the innards, right? Old translations of the Bible sometimes refer to this, the bowels of compassion because of that language. And the, the thrust of the word is not just sympathy. It's not just pity. It's to say that when Jesus looked out on a crowd of, of human suffering, it, he felt it in his gut. There was a gut-wrenching sort of expression of love that welled up within him. He felt it in his heart when he looked out and he saw human suffering. He was moved to, to physically feel it. He couldn't simply turn the other way. You contrast that with one of the most prevailing philosophies that was running around in the first century, that of Stoicism. 
Maybe you've heard about the Stoics. They were incapable of feeling, so to speak. They sort of reasoned this. This is how their philosophy sort of played out. That if a man could somehow feel sorrow or feel joy, it meant that somehow someone else could, had the power to affect him and alter his feelings, to make him happy or sad. And so they, they surmised that if, if God could then feel sorrow or joy at anything that happens to men, it would mean that men could then affect God, and therefore men had power over God. And since that's impossible, they came to the conclusion that God must be essentially without feeling. Hence, a divine being would have no compassion, could have no compassion. In fact, there was a, a Stoic philosopher by the name of Epictetus who wrote about how, if you wanted to follow Stoicism pretty closely, how you could train yourself to not care when you lose something because that's what your pursuit should be. And here's a quote from Epictetus. He says this, This should be our study from morning to night, beginning from the least and frailest things, from an earthen vessel, from a glass. Afterwards, proceed to a, a suit of clothes or a dog, a horse, an estate. From thence to yourselves, body, parts of the body, children, wife, brothers. Lose anything. See your nearest and dearest die and say, it doesn't matter. I don't care. That was the pursuit of Stoicism. You have to train yourself not to care. And so you get the idea how you do that as you pursue this philosophy of life is you just start with the little things in life. You know, you break a glass and you tell yourself, oh, I don't care about that, it's just a glass. And then you move up to things like clothes that you do care about and you lose it and you ah, no big deal, I don't care, it doesn't matter. And you make your way up to your nearest and dearest, your wife, your dog, dog, your wife. I think that's the right dog, wife, family. I'm sorry, I got that all mixed up. But you move up progressively up the scale of care and concern and all the way up to the nearest and dearest thing in your life to where the person closest to you can die and you can simply say, I don't care, I'm unmoved. It's into that kind of a world and that kind of philosophy that Jesus Christ walks. And he did not go about his work like a stoic with a cold sense of duty his heart drew him out toward people, toward the sick and toward the desperate. The brokenness and the suffering of human beings made in his image grieved the heart of Christ. It moved him. He felt it deep inside. It broke his heart, and he had to act. He was moved with compassion by their physical suffering. He was moved with compassion even more for their spiritual suffering. You see, the people who were suffering were not only suffering in body, but they were cut off from salvation. The way he says that is this, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Because in the first century, in the prevailing Judaism of the day, if you were sick, or you were diseased, or you were demonized, or you were suffering, the bottom line assumption was, somehow it's your fault. And the sick and the suffering were shunned and they were pushed away and you didn't go near them because they were unclean and so when Jesus or when the gospel writers tell us that Christ was moved with compassion because when he saw them they were like sheep without a shepherd that's literally what they were 
They were sick and they were suffering and the religious leaders who were supposed to be shepherds of their souls had cast them away and they were long forgotten. They had no shepherd. They had no one who would go to them and preach to them the truth. They had no one who would go to them and tell them about God and and his compassion and his love for them. They had no one. So not only were they suffering physically, but they were suffering spiritually. They were abandoned. And Christ was moved by their physical suffering, but he was moved by their spiritual condition just the same. Not only were their lives in the present filled with miserable suffering, but their future was even worse. An eternal hell apart from God. And so Christ goes to the sick, and he goes to the suffering, and he spends all evening, late into the night, healing every single one of them. Never got too tired. Everyone who came, he healed. He doesn't do that all the time. He didn't then, he doesn't now. I recall one particular event that John records for us in his gospel where Jesus walks to the pool of Bethsaida and there are sick and diseased people all around and he walks up to one man and he tells him to pick up his mat and leave and he leaves the pool of Bethsaida and all the other suffering people stay. Why on that day just one man? Why on this day that Luke records everybody? I don't know. I have no idea. But what I do know is this. Christ had great compassion for human suffering. Great compassion. And he often worked to exhaustion, relieving it. The ministry of Jesus is both a ministry of authority and a ministry of compassion. He was at heart a preacher of the gospel. He was a teacher of the truth. But at the very same time, he felt a gut-wrenching love and compassion for those who suffer and that moved him toward them, not away from them. And my firm conviction is that these two aspects of his ministry existed in perfect harmony, that there was no competition between the two. Nor should we think of it as that. So how do we apply all this? What difference does it make? Let me just make two statements as far as application to wrap this up. The first is this. If you're here this morning and your life is touched by some kind of suffering, some kind of sickness, some kind of pain, some kind of grief, maybe the kind that nobody that's sitting around you this morning knows anything about. You can know for sure one thing. Jesus cares. He cares. You may feel like some of these people that that Jesus dealt with in Luke chapter 4 You may feel like you're cast away and you're all alone and nobody understands and nobody understands and nobody knows and maybe even feel like nobody cares. But you need to hear this morning that Jesus cares and he knows. He's not oblivious to your suffering. He's not cold to it. He's not ambivalent to what you're dealing with. Now, he may not respond to it in the way that you'd like him to, He may not remove it in the time frame that appeals to you, but make no mistake about it. Your suffering moves him and he cares. I ran across a hymn just just last night, late, from 1901, written by a man named Frank Graf, or Graf, I'm not sure how to say his name. It's a hymn that's simply called, 
does Jesus care? There's some lyrics from that hymn sort of reflected, I think, what I'm trying to say. First verse, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. The refrain says this, oh yes he cares, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. The second verse says this, does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into the deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? The third verse, does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for the deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all night long. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it ought to him? Does he see? And the refrain every time, oh yes, he cares. Yes, he cares. He really cares. You need to hear that this morning if you're suffering. Unfortunately, I think it's probably true, uh, not overstating it to say that all of us in some ways who follow after Christ fall very short of reflecting the same kind of compassion toward human suffering that Christ carried. And if you've sensed that from God's people, I apologize to you for that. It shouldn't be that way. If you're touched by suffering, he cares. And then finally, let me say this. As a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian who identifies with Jesus, let me just say it a different way. A Christian that identifies with Jesus and is cold to human suffering is a complete and total contradiction in terms. The people of Jesus should be moved by the things that move Jesus. And we have to make sure we get the message right that he preached. But we have to carry ourselves with the same kind of compassion that he carried himself with as well. And we have to work to cultivate that. Because it doesn't come natural to us. It's easy for us to get in the zone of life and just get busy with our cares and concerns and to just walk past people and be oblivious to how they're suffering. Or even at times to see it and to assume that's somebody else's problem. I've got something else to do. The people who identify with Christ should be moved by the things that moved him. And if you search your own heart this morning and you find that you're not moved by human suffering and yet you identify with Christ, you need to run to Christ this morning and seek his help to know why. To seek his help to rectify what's gone wrong because something's gone wrong. Well, miracles don't always generate faith. They don't always. Many of the recipients of Jesus' miracles we'll see don't even show the basic, most basic gratitude. Many of them. We'll find that for hardened skeptics, there's no amount of miracles that'll be enough. There's no amount of evidence that will convince them. 
I think of the Pharisees in John chapter 8, where a man literally was, was blind his whole life. And Jesus miraculously heals them, this man. And the man is standing. Everybody knew he was a blind beggar. He's standing in front of the Pharisees, and they're interrogating him, demanding he explain how all this happened. And he's explaining it to them, and they just absolutely refuse to deal with it. It's as plain as the nose on their face. They can see the miracle standing in front of them, literally. But their hardened hearts refuse to accept it. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, read that. Read the story about that guy encountering the Pharisees. They're asking, well, where is he from? What is his name? Tell us about this guy. And he said, I don't know about all that. What I know is I was blind and now I see. That's what I know. That's what I know about him. Tell us again how it happened. I've already told you a couple of times. Do you, you need to hear it again? Are you thinking about believing in him? They throw him out of the building. And he joyfully goes down the road seeing. No amount of miracles will convince the hardened skeptic. But for open hearts, for people who genuinely desire to see the truth. The miracles of Jesus are signs that point to the message of the gospel. Philip Yancey said this. He said, a sign is not the same thing as proof. A sign is merely a marker for someone who's looking in the right direction. And that's what the miracles were. Not only were they signs pointing to the message of the gospel, but they were validating evidence that the truth is the truth. But the miracles did one other thing. Every time Jesus healed somebody who was sick, it gave us a glimpse of the ultimate restoration that's to come. Yancey says it this way, every physical healing pointed back to a time in Eden when physical bodies did not go blind, get crippled, or bleed nonstop for 12 years and also pointed forward to a time of recreation to come. The miracles he did perform give me a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instill hope that one day God will right its wrongs. I like that conclusion, especially for a man who struggled with understanding miracles, why God does sometimes and doesn't other times. There's coming a day when he's going to make it all right. And every miracle is just a little, a little glimpse as to what that's going to look like. And so Jesus preached with authority, and he preached the truth. He is the Son of God. He does have authority over all realms of existence. And he's the Son of God who loves his creation and is moved with compassion when we suffer. Why would you refuse to come to a Christ like that? Why would you refuse one who loves so deeply? Why would you refuse one who's so moved by suffering of humanity that he would step out of heaven, he would wrap himself in human flesh, that he would endure suffering, even the suffering that would lead him to death on a cross, where he would shed his own blood and give his own life in the place of suffering people so that they might be healed? not just temporarily from an illness but that their soul might be healed from the curse of sin and eternal life might be given why would you not run to him this morning why would you see that and turn away and say no there's something better I'll pursue there's nothing better there's no one better there's only Jesus if you don't know him this morning you should know him 
He stands before you with arms open wide. And he says, come to me. If you're weary, you're tired of suffering, you're heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. Won't you do that this morning if you don't know him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed by your grace. Amazed. One who is so powerful and with such authority and yet cares about the hurt and the pain that we experience. Can't understand it fully. Can't fully wrap my brain around it. Don't understand the why. Can't even begin to fathom the how. But your word declares it and I believe it. That that's precisely who you are. And I just believe that in a room of this size with this many folks, but there's a somebody or a few somebodies who understand human suffering because right now they feel it. People around them don't know. Maybe people in their own family don't know. But you know. Lord Jesus, would you convince them this morning that you care? That you're moved with compassion for their suffering just like you were in the synagogue in Capernaum in Luke 4 and in Peter's home that afternoon and late into the evening with all the others who, like them, are suffering. Would you help them to feel your presence, your nearness to them, your love for them, your compassion for their experience? Would you help them look to you this morning and find hope? Regardless of whether you relieve their suffering in the short term, may they see you this morning as the ultimate healer who will one day make it all right, even if it's not today. And Lord, for myself and for my friends who've gathered who, who identify with your name, this is a hard message. It's a hard message if we take it seriously. Because when we look in the mirror, we have to admit, we're not always moved with human suffering like you are. It's easy for us to become cold to it. And we need your help to soften our hearts. So would you do that work in us this morning? We pray that you would do it for your own glory and for your own sake and for our good. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.